Today's tale is called The Monuments. I find it uplifting to think about all the different ways in which the world might end, and how every day the absurdities of national pride are exposed everywhere, if only we care to look. The Monuments The Eiffel Tower has disappeared, said my husband over breakfast. What do you mean, disappeared? I replied. I wasn't really listening to him, as was so often the case. It's not there any more, he went on. It was there last night, the last time anyone looked, but when they all woke up this morning it was gone. He showed me a picture in his newspaper of the Champ de Mars in Paris, the large open space where the Eiffel Tower usually stood. There was also a picture of the Eiffel Tower last week sometime, when the thought of its disappearance was far from anyone's mind, and, side by side, a picture of its absence. There was not a sign of it. Did terrorists blow it up then, I asked? Nope. No explosions or peculiar activities have been observed, just the fact that it's not there any more. Anyway, I must be going. I blew a nonchalant kiss in his direction, and he went off to work, unperturbed by the strange headline. How odd, I thought, and wondered if I should turn on the television. Our comfortable neglect of each other included a rule that while reading newspaper or a book at mealtimes was perfectly acceptable, listening to the radio or watching television was impolite. It was something my father had instilled in me, something that I was about to set aside as a series of extraordinary events gripped the world and had me glued to the TV set at every opportunity, although my husband remained indifferent throughout, shredding in the process any vestiges of affection that I retained for the man. Every channel was covering the news about the Eiffel Tower. The studios of the world had assembled panels of experts to expound upon what had happened. The theories were predictably crazy and ridiculous, but no more so than the event itself. Terrorists were top of the charts when it came to identifying a perpetrator, but no method could be convincingly described. One French diplomat said she was sure that terrorists had now devised an antimatter bomb that could obliterate buildings and military hardware, but leave people and the environment unscathed. Her theory was swiftly dismissed by a panel of physicists who claimed that to manufacture enough antimatter for a bomb would take millions of years. It was, though, mesmerising television, and I decided to call in sick to my work because I was so gripped by what had happened and why it appeared so difficult to come to terms with. A second theory that started doing the rounds had two variants. First, the tower had not disappeared at all, but was being masked by an invisibility cloak. This was debunked when the French army, who had been mobilised on the Champ de Mars, marched up and down over the space where the Eiffel Tower had stood. It was hard to know what they were going to do other than march up and down, given that there was nothing left to steal or vaporise. Surely they'd be better off guarding the Louvre or the Arc de Triomphe to make sure they stayed put. Then there was the straightforward hoax theory. The French government was unpopular and needed a national crisis to reverse its slide down the poles. What better than a crisis of national pride, but without human casualties? All the footage was fake, and a carefully constructed fiction was being played out at the expense of credulous people around the world. But, as more and more journalists and celebrities turned up to see for themselves, and then gave interviews and tweeted and Facebooked their inane surprise and shock, the hoax theory began to collapse. My favourite hypothesis was elaborated by a French philosopher. Essentially, he claimed, the Eiffel Tower had gone off in a sulk, in protest at the demise of French culture, and in particular the waning importance of philosophy in the school curriculum. No one really had any idea what had happened, or why or how it had happened. 
The papers and the television stations buzzed with the news, and there were interviews with famous people describing the important role that the Tower had played in their lives. Several documentaries were made, and a full-length feature film went into production. However, as with all news, it gradually faded in importance. The French tourist industry did not suffer, because as many people now came to see where the Eiffel Tower had once been, as had come to go up it when it was still there. Life, as we love saying, goes on. My marriage proceeded in the same way, ignoring the elephant that had left the room, and we continued to exchange little in the way of meaningful conversation. But it was a status quo with which we were both content. Content, that is, until the morning paper announced that the Tower of London had disappeared. "'Looks like the Tower of London has had enough, too,' said my husband at breakfast. "'A Tower of London?' I replied. "'I didn't think the Eiffel Tower would be the only great monument to vanish into thin air.' "'That's what everyone is now claiming,' said my husband, far too smugly for my liking. "'But are you sure the Tower of London is a great monument?' He brushed the crumbs of a croissant from his lap and stared at me over the top of his glasses, a gesture which I had begun to find tooth-grindingly irritating, though without quite being able to describe why. "'Of course it is. It's far older than the Eiffel Tower,' I asserted. "'Isn't it just a wall to stop the crown jewels from escaping?' he retorted. We began to bicker. I told him that I found it strange that he wasn't affected by these buildings going AWOL. He told me that he'd start to worry once the Alps buggered off or the English Channel did a runner. Then he went to work as usual, and I fumed, as once again I decided to call in sick and watch the news reports of this second extraordinary disappearance. The British immediately declared a state of emergency, and people began to wave Union flags at every opportunity. Instead of terrorists, the European Union was the chief suspect. Politicians fulminated, TV historians burned with stentorian apoplexy, brigadiers prattled pompously, and spokesmen for the royal family spilled crocodile tears. The Daily Mail began a campaign fund for homeless beefeaters, and the RSPB started a petition about ravens. Once again, conspiracy theories, hoax theories, and with increasing frequency, alien abduction theories did the rounds. Both the Eiffel Tower and the Tower of London were spotted on Mars, only to disappear again the next day, claimed the Astronomer Royal. Serious columnists considered which planet or moon in the solar system would make the best depository for stolen human monuments, and sociologists tried to track the unconscious effects on human behaviour of the disappearance of the structures in question. I thought of my own relationship with the Eiffel Tower and with the Tower of London, and came to the conclusion that I much preferred the former, and had only been to see the crown jewels as a child, never having returned to the ancient Norman keep. Nevertheless, I felt a sense of loss, and I knew that something was happening which was making people say the most ridiculous things, probably through the insecurity that a total lack of control or influence must induce in the powerful. The disappearances were discussed at international summits, much to the irritation of eastern and southern countries, and a good deal of sabre-rattling was stirred up by the British and French delegations. This was not a laughing matter, although the rest of the world was splitting its sides. Oh, how they sniggered! up until the unexpected departure, on the same night, of the statue of Christ the Redeemer in Rio de Janeiro and the ruins of Machu Picchu in Peru. By this time I had handed in my notice at work and spent my days watching the television and poring over the newspaper reports. I had never liked my job anyway, and as I had a deep sense of foreboding of an eschatological nature, it didn't seem to matter very much to me. I had a small inheritance from my father, and by remaining indoors and eating only cheese and chocolate while I watched the news, sipping the odd glass of Fino Sherry, 
I could eke out an existence without worrying what my inane, irascible and contemptuous husband thought about anything. He felt as useful to me as the pointless decision by UNESCO to declare a state of global heritage emergency. He would come home from work and sigh with disapproval, but he stayed for a minute or two looking at the television, wondering what was happening to our world and what the next development would be. The next development was a five-fold erasure, a reminder, if any was needed, that this was a worldwide phenomenon and we had no power to prevent it. Altogether, during the course of one night, and caught on film so we could pore over the footage time and again, Angor Wat, the Sydney Opera House, the Pyramid of Cheops the Great, the Taj Mahal, and the Colosseum evaporated. There was no slow fading away, no warning, no aftershock, just the instant removal from human history of some of its best and most beautiful endeavours. And what of the people who were inside these structures at the time? They were left, always on the ground level, bemused, terrified, though always unharmed, as the edifice around them was whipped away into nothingness. The soldiers, the policemen and women, the National Guards and the private security personnel who had by now been hired to patrol and protect the best-known and loved monuments in every country of the world were absolutely and totally hopeless. They saved nothing, prevented nothing, arrested hundreds of suspects, then let them all go again. By now, though, a sort of inverse manifestation of national pride had taken hold. Governments of countries where no monuments of national importance had disappeared became nervous that a judgment of their comparative insignificance was being made. One thing was noted, though. No country had yet had more than one monument disappear. This led them to carry out public consultations on the buildings felt to be most dear in the heart of the nation. Many civil wars broke out, for instance, between the supporters of the Empire State Building and the Lincoln Memorial in the United States of America. Both were humiliated when it was Mount Rushmore that disappeared, although the American government had been trying to promote a view that it was evidence of the greatness rather than the decline of their country, which had meant it had been spared the phenomenon up until that point. St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow went missing the following day, just before a new Cold War could break out. When the Great Wall of China disappeared, no state was able to claim world dominance in terms of being immune from the global attack. It felt like human history itself was being erased in front of our eyes, stone by stone. My husband shouted at me that I should get on with my life instead of lying in filth and mourning over the loss of lumps of brick and steel. But even he was taken aback when the fourth bridge absented itself. Was this evidence of the break-up of the United Kingdom? As a passionate unionist, he felt sure that regional nationalists would claim this as evidence of the unsustainability of Great Britain. My husband had had the unfortunate combination of a Northern Irish unionist father and a Scottish Presbyterian mother. When we had married, I had been impressed by the way that he avoided the bigotry towards which both heritages can occasionally lean. He held no truck with the symbols of nationalism, he claimed, as evidenced by his lack of concern for the Tower of London. However, the removal or escape of the fourth bridge revealed that he was not as immune as he claimed. He announced that he had great sympathy for the orange marchers who paraded up and down outside of Stormont, as everyone agreed that the giant's causeway was not in fact man-made and therefore unlikely to be stolen. The Orange Order petitioned the Queen to accept their sacrifice of Stormont in order to save the Union. Unfortunately, no one wanted it, and they became particularly incensed when the Rock of Cashel couldn't be found one morning in the Republic. But what were the bleatings of a few proto-fascists compared to the erosion of human culture? 
I told my husband that the United Kingdom was a fragile and insignificant entity, floating away from the rest of the world in a coma of narcissistic self-indulgence. This was the last straw. He prized off his wedding ring, with a good deal of difficulty, it must be said, and flung it at me. You're a disgrace, he spat. I'm moving in with Shirley. Shirley was a fellow accountant at Bosworth, Battle and Butterfield, the largest such firm in the country. She had been around to dinner a few times, together with the rest of his workmates. She looked like a poodle who had suffered a stroke, and was probably the ideal companion for my husband. No doubt she adored him, and mewled and whimpered during coitus. I had remained resolutely silent during the years of sexual congress, which had thankfully now ceased. There was no pang of jealousy, no anger or sadness, just the profound relief that I would no longer have to tolerate this snoring, sneering nitwit in my life any more. I'll contact my lawyer in the morning, I said. Thank God we don't have a joint bank account. And that was that. I didn't see him again for many years. The day he left, the Atomium in Brussels, the Hadron Particle Accelerator at Chern in Switzerland, and the Aztec Pyramid of the Sun in Mexico all went walkabout. Soon every country in the world had suffered a loss. Yes, this included the Vatican, where the Sistine Chapel departed. Yes, this included Saudi Arabia, where the Kaaba was no longer to be found. And yes, it included Israel, where the Temple Mount vanished, leaving no trace. Religion, the virus at the centre of human delusion, did not cope well with these developments. It was not clear exactly who started the war. It was as if it had become inevitable in the minds of the powerful. History is full of reference to the drift to war, as if some outside force was acting upon unconscious human agents. Suddenly we realised that we were at war, although we didn't really know what that meant. There were no declarations, and although it was most certainly a world war, there were no clear divisions, no mighty blocks lined up against each other. No, this was the war of all against all. The disintegration of our cultures was terrifyingly rapid. We had thought ourselves robust, that our institutions and traditions were a defence against the collapse of values. How wrong we were. Every country felt wounded and attacked, and yet the disappearance of the monuments had not caused any loss of life. That was soon remedied by the blind rage of random blaming. Without evidence and without logic, the usual suspects found themselves accused of plotting and unleashing terror. No weapons and no documents were found, but a shrill xenophobia and a reactionary social conservatism were soon able to appropriate the moral authority to condemn others. And this process unfolded with little opposition in every nation on earth, so that by the time of the next round of disappearances, including the Louvre, Stonehenge, the Brandenburg Gate, the Sagrada Familia, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, the Forbidden City, and so on, a rabid hatred had taken hold of governments and peoples everywhere. There were mass arrests, lynchings, vigilante shootings, border sorties, aerial strikes, drone attacks, and finally, of course, nuclear bombs. We were all engulfed in a conflagration of loathing and murder. Any remaining monuments to our glory and vision as a species were now assaulted. Fair game for the tidal wave of destruction that swept across the globe. For ten years the war scorched the skies of the earth. For ten years until utter exhaustion and an unimaginable casualty rate resulted in ceasefires, surrenders, and the gradual petering out of hostilities. With war, of course, came the other three horsemen, famine, disease, and death. For months I looked out of my window at the slaughter, living on the tins in my larder, and then, after the cat disappeared, on the cat food. And then, when my building was overrun and I was cast out on the street, I lived in the shadows and the corners. 
I imagined once that I saw my husband scuttling across the square with a Kalashnikov rifle in his hand, but then I thought that was unbelievably unlikely. Surely my husband had perished in the killing grounds of the city, as I myself must surely do, sooner or later. There was no television by this point, no newspapers, just the occasional radio broadcast from the cracks of survival in the least devastated zones of the world. We navigated our way through the mountains of rubble. Only wrecked shells of buildings remained anywhere. There were now no monuments at all, and this was no doubt true everywhere. Just rocks and dust, just guerrilla pathways through the abattoir. I fell in with other filthy, desperate ghosts, darting in and out of the daylight, skewering the odd rat to barbecue in the doorways of dereliction. We persevered without hope or expectation. It was a loose alliance of the desperate and starving. There were frequent arguments, many of them fatal. We had only one rule, and that was that we would not eat human flesh, unless there was absolutely no alternative. There were many times when our scavenging forays yielded no sustenance, nothing that could be gnawed or ripped to keep our bodies staggering on. It was then that we looked wonderingly at the corpses that lay strewn in our path in every direction. We would pull each other away from salivating at the sight of those cadavers posing as edible meat. We blundered ahead through the endless days, without values, without culture, without history or the future. Blind instinct dragged us forward. There was nothing to live for, nothing to believe in, nothing to dream of. One day a withered skeleton appeared, crawling on its knees towards a fire we had built to roast a pigeon. It was unpredictable what would happen on these occasions. It was possible that we would throw the poor creature a few scraps to nibble on. On the other hand, it was just as likely that we'd kick him to death. When I realised with almost complete indifference that this was my husband, I made a signal to the others that we should let him approach. I had no authority in the group, but then neither really did anyone else. We were all exhausted, which meant that the arbitrary execution of a stranger was probably beyond our savagery for the moment. He slithered up to us and tried to warm his bony hands beside the fire. I had to tell him who I was, as there was no flicker of recognition in his nearly dead eyes. However, once the information began to sink in, he started to laugh. He couldn't contain himself, and guffawed in a most disconcerting manner. We were not used to laughter, and it made us uncomfortable. I think one of us might well have bludgeoned him, had he not taken hold of himself and quietened down. He was eager to speak, and what he told us, whether it was true or not, at least afforded us one final glimpse of the wonder of the universe, and the suggestion that there were forces at large in the world that operated beyond the comprehension of mankind, that vicious, debased, futile, and disgusting animal. I heard a radio broadcast from the south of Japan, they still have some scientists there, apparently, with working equipment and access to ocean-going vessels of some kind. It seems they've located the monuments, all of them, all of the missing buildings and statues and temples and towers and everything. Everything whose disappearance led us to this, to the decomposing state of you and me, my dear. They've found them all, neatly stacked, one on top of the other, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. They've been there for years now, sitting in the sea, for safekeeping, while we annihilate each other. What do you think of that? I didn't think much of it. I threw him the entrails of the pigeon. We all stared at the fire. The sun slouched off behind the hills of rubble. The dark crept up, menacing and blue. One or two stars peeped out. The wind chattered. Rubbish was blown across the blasted landscape. Our race was run. Thank you for listening.
And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share.